By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from adamyoungolf.com. So, we have a, a little small announcement to make. This podcast, The Sweet Spot, continues to grow and we've decided to join a podcast network. So, we are now part of the Blue Wire Network, which is a sports network dedicated to podcasters like us. So, you might notice a few ads coming probably on this episode and future episodes. That'll help us continue to grow the show and you'll be supporting Adam and myself by listening. So thank you. We just want to say thanks to everyone. The show's grown a lot faster than we anticipated. We're getting great feedback. Keep the questions coming, but just wanted to make that quick announcement. Yeah, and I know a lot of people will be like, oh, no, adverts, but there'll only be a few in there. And, uh, you know, like we are paying basically to do this, aren't we? You know, we've got a hosting, we take time out of our day as well. You know, it takes an hour to kind of prepare for these things and then obviously an hour to do it. And then we have to add, have the whole thing edited as well. So this podcast at the moment is running at an expense for us. So, uh, yeah, these adverts just help us stay motivated to keep giving you guys great content. And that's it. That's the announcement. So, Adam, you were telling me before we started recording that you're starting to use a little stroke gained analysis. Is that true? Yeah, well, I've started playing a little bit more. I'm still kind of stuck in the simulator right now. So, but it is, you know, it's realistic ish because it's a GC quad. I don't know why I said ish at the end of that. I suppose it's because I've used the strokes gain stuff and I'm hitting shots on the simulator and then marking down how far it finished from the flag and then having a look after and I'm playing pretty well <laughs> on the simulator at least. Um, the putting part is really difficult for me. So my strokes gained on putting, I think I was like a, I was about a two or three handicap on putting. With driving, I'm about a plus two handicap, something like that, plus three handicap. Mainly, I'm not as high with that because of distance. I don't hit it that far, especially because when I'm in my simulator room, I can't actually lash it like I would on the course because the room is so small and I can't swing a driver in here. So, I kind of have to bunt it down there. But approach play, apparently, it put me as a plus 13 handicap. I don't know what that means, but... So, you're the best in the world on the simulator. On the simulator, yeah. I mean, obviously... Well, let's get you out. Let's get you out in the real world more and playing see how that translates let's log go play five six seven rounds of real golf and then maybe we can get our buddy mark brody to give you access to his app golf metrics and you could start seeing how that performance is translating to the real world that's it well i think the main thing with the simulator is you've got a perfect lie every time i mean this thing that i'd play it does make adjustments if you hit it in the rough you know you can't hit a five wood out of it it just doesn't come out 
No, there's no way. Yeah. Whenever you play on simulation, I find the short game is incredibly unrealistic because, you know, putting is difficult, especially with depth perception. You certainly can't recreate like a, a intermediate lie in the rough or a bunker. So when I'm practicing on my SkyTrack, which I guess will become more relevant as we get towards the winter for me, I always take certain things with a grain of salt, but I'm always paying attention to, you know, proximity numbers, distance and stuff like that, which you can certainly calculate with strokes gained. Yeah, exactly. The short game stuff is interesting. Like you said, the putting was the most difficult. I stand over a 20 foot putt and I knock it 20 foot past the first time because you don't have, you're using a different locus of attention, right? On the golf course, you look at it. So you're using visual attention and then your brain is attached to that feel. Whereas here, I'm having to relearn it basically. I'm having to learn it by numbers. So I have to learn, okay, this is 20 foot. This is what 20 foot feels like. So my brain is slowly doing that. It is learning that way. Similar with pitch shots, you know, I use more of a clock-based system, like the pelt system. So, you know, swinging my arm to nine o'clock is 60 yards with a sand wedge. And so, whereas when I'm on the course, usually I'm more visual. And so, what I found is that I've learned how to do the putting indoors now, and I'm improving at putting indoors. But I went out to play outside, and it really screwed my brain up for a while because I was caught in between those two locuses of tension. My brain was saying, right, let's use the visual information. But then I'd go back to looking at the ball and my brain would be trying to think of the feel-based thing that I was using on the simulator. Does that make sense or am I sounding crazy here? Yeah, I mean, that's why I do not putt on SkyTrack. Like if I'm playing, I use the World Golf Tour thing through my iPad. I don't putt because I don't want to mess with that. I feel very comfortable with I mean, I play a lot of golf, so I don't want to disrupt exactly what you're talking about is my my body, everything walking around the hole, my eyes like sensing that depth and then trying to engage that athletic part of me versus, you know, a computer screen saying 25 feet. For me, that's just not the same. I don't think in terms of 25 feet when I putt. I know some people do. They'll like walk it off. I don't like that for my own approach. So I kind of stay away from the putting on that thing. In any event, Let's get on to, this is part two of our pre-shot routine series here. What did we do in the first episode? We did pre-shot analysis and pre-shot preparation, correct? Yeah, we had a little chat about the study Matt Bridges did, the European tour study, talking about how quicker routines, or at least being quicker over the golf ball and having a more consistent routine, more consistent facets to the routine, that improved performance dramatically, although it was a correlation study, not necessarily causation, but uh, I have seen causation work. Yeah, we've done pre-shot analysis, so looking at the lie, visualizing what you want, choosing the the club distance, choosing your aim, adjusting that for wind and lie. And then we've done pre-shot prep as well, so the practice swing, adjusting it if necessary, something that I tend to do, and then deciding on what your swing thought's going to be before you get into the shot. So what we're going to be chatting about today is what you should be actually doing in the shot, so as you're walking in, as you're standing over the ball, things like that. And then a post-shot as well, post-shot routine. Yeah, I'm very excited about the post-shot routine. I don't think this is something that's... I am because no one really talks about this and it's something that has helped me tremendously. So, I am excited to talk about that. So, if you haven't listened to part one, go back. This is going to build upon the sequence of the pre-shot routine. So, I'd stop here and go back if you haven't listened to it yet. I'd rather you listen to it in the order that we presented it. And just as a plug to all of our other episodes, they are evergreen. You can go back into our catalog. There's no certain order except for episodes like these where we have two-parters. And I just want to make one like overall point. Maybe I missed this in the last episode about pre-shot routines. I just view it, I've spoken a lot about commitment and people ask me like, oh, you know, I have this big tournament coming up where I get nervous. Like, what do I do? And I don't have a magic wand to tell people like, oh, this is what you do to play well under pressure or make sure you play well that day. I I pretty much have the same answer to everyone is that you have your routine and you commit to it. And that's as simple as it sounds. And it's certainly not going to fix everything for you, but that's what I think the best in the world talk about all the time and various levels of great amateur players, you know, whether I'm teeing it up in a recreational round or, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be trying to get a spot in the U.S. Mid-Am qualifier. I'm just trying to do the same thing. I'm just trying to commit to no matter what happens on the course, going through this routine, being non-emotional about it, being analytical and 
living with the results and just keep doing it. And we will talk about what living with the results means in the post shot routine, but that's really what I think is the number one commitment, you know, players can make probably going back to our episode on grit is that you kind of want to use this routine as your shield, no matter how good or bad things are going on the course. So that's my little preliminary statement and we can get into it now. On the bad side of it, like you just said, you know, that goes back to our podcast on grit, you know, whereas I see so many people, they start to have a bad round and then they give up on everything. They give up on their routine as well. And that just, you know, it'll start to compound itself then. Yeah, it's really the anchor because when you give up on the routine, you're giving up on making smart strategic decisions. You've mentioned this before. If you start doing something different, you're signaling something different to your brain. All things can kind of get out of control. And that's probably where the routine has its most value is when things are going badly. So part three of this sequence that we've been discussing is execution, right? What are you doing when it's time to pull the trigger? Yeah, so I define that as when you put your first foot forwards to start to walk into the shot really so everything before that has been preparing the mental side of it you know like we said picking right clubs deciding on your locus of attention now it's right we're we're actually hitting the shot now we're walking in and so you know one of the things i would say is always keep moving i mean you have to up until you reach the ball certainly but we see so many people stand over the ball and then they just freeze up and they stop moving and uh, seen some people where I thought, am I in the matrix here? Have they just paused? <laughs> They're just like, someone just put a pause button on them. But, you know, usually in that case, in the case of that person, they, they go in through a checklist of things, right? They are paralysis by analysis. They have it. So they're going through right grip, stance, posture, and they're trying to think of their swing thoughts as they're over the golf ball. Usually they have too many. You know, I usually have just one clear focus, whereas this person is probably trying to go through a checklist of 10, 20 things. And so, yeah, that's going to make you freeze up over the golf ball. Yeah. I mean, we said it in the prior episode. I don't think longer is better. I realize that's very hard for people to do. Sometimes it's it feels like it's almost out of their control when they freeze over the ball and they just can't pull the trigger. We've seen uh, Sergio Garcia comes to mind, particularly when he played at the US Open at Bethpage Black. He had his, that was the worst point in his career where he couldn't pull the trigger. The Long Island fans were not kind to him. But, you know, this happens, you know, people just kind of get stuck over the ball and they're, you, know, you mentioned moving, but they could just waggle and waggle and waggle and it never stops. So, I mean, personally, when I am stepping over the ball, I mentioned in my pre-shot routine, in the preparation phase, I'm doing my two practice swings, establishing my shot feel. I do my little alignment thing, which I actually had to send someone a picture. Someone was asking me, they listened to the episode, like, what does that actually look like? So, I had to actually send them a picture of it because it's so bizarre. In any event, when I do settle over the ball, I, you know, maybe I'm like waggling a little bit, but there's not much time elapsing between when I'm situated, like aligned properly to when I'm actually hitting the shot. I'm not trying to spend much time over the ball. I've got kind of my last final thought. Maybe I'm, if I'm hitting an iron, I'm thinking about ground contact and I just go, I just hit. Yeah, there's, I spend no longer than four seconds over the golf ball. It would be very, very consistent as well. I'm pretty much in and hit. I don't spend a lot of time because, you know, I've done this testing with so many people, especially the analytical people. If I get someone who's too analytical, even in a lesson, or if I can be the issue here as a coach. Sometimes we go through a lesson and sometimes I do a technical lesson. Sometimes people need that. And if I sense that that person is getting a little bit too bogged down with it, what I do at the end of the lesson is almost, I call it deconditioning. I say, right, you've done your training now. You've done the drills. Now let's go back to more of a playing focus. And then I make them do a routine where they have to hit within like two seconds of standing over the golf ball. I give them a certain amount of time and I make sure that that time is not enough for them to be thinking about what we've just worked on. And they, they often look at me and they say, well, shouldn't I be thinking of all that stuff we've just done? And I say, no, you do your training in training. You don't do your training in play. When it's time to play, we need to be a little bit more reactive. And so I would say in 90% of cases, when people are standing in and hitting that shot very quickly, their results get much more consistent. Even though they feel out of control with it, they often say, oh, this feels way too quick. I don't even have time to think. I'm like, yeah, that's the point with this, actually. And so it's not for everybody, certainly, but it's, I would say in 
80-90% of cases, people hit it better when they just walk in and hit it quicker and they don't have a lot of time to go through too many checklists. And their swings look good as well, sorry. Exactly. You're not going to, I don't think you're going to discover anything new over the golf ball is what I think because I've probably fallen victim to this quite a bit when I was maybe struggling with my swing years ago and I feel that kind of, well, what's my thought here? You know, what am I doing on this one? And then you're just kind of get stuck over the ball. It's almost like you alluded to this and what you just said is the practice time and all of the time spent off the course All of that preparation is meant to occur, all that thinking, that conscious thinking about technique and all that stuff. You do it off the course so that when you get on the course, you can let it happen. And we certainly don't have the 100% absolute answer for that for everyone. But as Adam says, I think your best chance of letting it happen is if you could do this routine that we spoke of where like when you're behind the ball, you're doing your analysis and kind of going through like a physical routine. And then when you cross that divide and you're over the ball, that's it. It's time to go. Yeah, be much more reactive. Yeah. Yeah. There's really nothing else. And I know this is much easier said than done, but there's really not that much else to do. Yeah, I think a lot of people as well, they believe that, well, if I'm not consciously controlling everything, then my swing is going to break down. And so that's another thing I do is when they're doing this quick routine, I'll video their swing and I'll show them, look, your swing is the same mechanically when you're not thinking about it. Just like, you know, if you don't think about your grip, you still take the same grip. If you just grab a club and don't think about all the processes that you learned it with, you'll still do it and it'll look exactly the same because we've repeated it so many times before. So your training will come through into your automatic or non-thinking swing. You just have to put enough reps in in training. So yeah, just don't worry that your swing is going to break down if you're not consciously attending to every position. That's not the case. In fact, you're probably going to hit a a much better, more consistent swing if you're not thinking of every facet of it. Just have that one swing thought that is important to you. You know, it's funny. I tried to, (laughs) I must have looked like a fool doing it. But before we started recording, I do my prep before the show. And I actually tried to go through my pre-shot routine without a golf club just, you know, kind of standing and doing my alignment. And I almost like had to like think about it. And it's so funny because when I'm on the golf course, you know, I've done it thousands and thousands of times over the years. It is this like reactive subconscious thing that's occurring. So I was kind of like double checking with myself. How would I do this? And I'm like, it was out of the context of being on the golf course. So it was kind of a funny exercise for me. That's amazing how our brain, that's the whole idea behind context, if anybody's ever heard about it, in contextual interference. Our brains are very, very specific when they learn things. And there's this obviously crossover, you know, if you learn golf in a simulator, you're going to go outside and some of that will transfer, but not all of it will transfer. You know, I'm not as good out on the golf course at the moment as I am on the simulator. And vice versa, when I first learned on the simulator, and like you said, having a club in your hands is the context when you've got the club in your hands, your brain is like, right, I know what to do. These are the automatic processes that are linked to that. So it's really interesting. And that leads to actually practicing the routine as well, which is... Are you literally just (laughs) suck the words out of my mouth, but you go ahead. Well, let's leave that till the end then. But let's preface it by saying... You know, just as your swing needs to be automatic, ideally, we want the majority of your routine to be automatic as well. well. We'll talk about that at the end. I have a question for you. I think it came up on Twitter when people are asking, when I posed the generic question about pre shot routines, people started talking about triggers. And I'm thinking about what I do on the golf course. I don't necessarily have a physical trigger for my full swing. But I do have one for my putting that has helped me because if I struggle anywhere or have struggled in the past with like freezing over the ball and then thinking too much about what could go wrong, it's certainly, I used to be what I would classify as a very poor putter for my skill level. I'd be thinking about, oh, did I get the read right? You know, is the speed going to be right? And I'm like hovering over the putt. Whereas now I actually have a trigger in the execution phase when I'm standing over the ball. My last move before I putt, and there's a specific reason for this, getting back to my original point is that every part of your pre-shot routine should have a reason. My shoulders tend to get very closed in my putting alignment. It's something that someone picked up on a couple of years ago when they were looking at my putting stroke. So my last move is to kind of open my shoulders back up. And that has actually been a great trigger for me. So that 
kind of signals to me like open the shoulders, go. And like I said, I don't have one for my full swing, but someone who comes to mind is Matt Wolf, professional golfer. He has that very specific trigger. What are your thoughts on triggers? I mean, most players have them. You know, a forward press of the club is a common one. Stenson comes to mind. Henrik Stenson does like a forward press before he goes. Yeah, Matt Wolf's is probably the most aggressive trigger. <laughs> and it's just usually those things are just kind of prepping for where they want to be at impact. And now that might be conscious. It might not be. You know, I, I remember someone saying that I have that forward press trigger. I'm not aware of it at all. It's just, you know, my brain has been so conditioned into achieving a certain impact that I think my brain is like, prepare for it unconsciously. The only thing that I would be more conscious of with a trigger is just placing the club head on the ground. So I kind of hover it as I'm setting up. Sorry, hover it in as I'm setting up. Got to translate for you Americans. And then I just place the club on the ground and then I go. So it's, but even that, it's not conscious now. It's just something I do. Yeah, I probably do something similar without even realizing it. But I think it, it could potentially have value. Again, this isn't an exact science. We're offering suggestions for people to kind of experiment on their own. But I was thinking about that physical trigger thing. And the shoulder alignment thing has helped me tremendously with my putting as a way to kind of combat that like freeze over the ball thinking too much of what could occur. So, you know, it's something for if you are trying to build a pre-shot routine, maybe you can experiment with if there's something like technical, like I don't know if the forward press would work for everyone, but you know, something to signify to your brain, like go and you can repeat it every time. Exactly. Then you have the problem of you might need a trigger for your trigger. Yeah, exactly. That's certainly a can of worms with our brains. But it leads into the idea of what should you focus on over the golf ball? And is it so for in putting, is that your main focus as you hit the shot? Is it just open the shoulders and go and that's your swing thought or is there a another level? No, I'm really not. I don't want to jinx it, but I'm at a good place with my putting where I'm not really thinking about the stroke too much. I don't worry about my alignment too much. I maybe it's perhaps uh, I'll do a little product plug here. This is not an official one, but I, I do have a Seymour putter. If anyone has used them before, they know they have this alignment system. It's a bullseye so that you are aligning the shaft and you can see this red dot disappear over your eyes. So that does help me get into position and feel confident over it. But yeah, with putting, as I've said earlier in other episodes, is my main focus is on speed. So I'm not worrying about like, oh, don't close the putter face or open it too much. I'm just I've picked my line and, and my main focus is uh, just like letting my body match that speed, whatever that means. But I'm really not trying to think of much, but at least that alignment trigger with my shoulder things, that just helps me get into a position that I believe will give me the best opportunity of starting it on the right line. But it's not necessarily like a technical thought, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I have different focuses for different shots. Yeah, Absolutely. With short putting, you know, if I'm, say, three to ten feet away, I just focus on it. It's actually an internal focus. It's a, I just visualize the nail through the ball. People are going to go nuts. <laughs> and I just tap the nail, basically. That's my focus with short putts. Once I get outside of that range or there's a little bit more curvature to the shot or speed is more important, then I'm very visual with my putting. So I'm spending a lot of practice swings looking at the hole. And then I walk in and the last thing that runs through my head is the visual of where the hole is in space, that kind of mental photograph that Tiger Woods talks about. With chipping, my focus is just ground contact. With irons, it's ground contact. And with the driver, it's face contact. So I pretty much have one focus for every shot. And it remains consistent for the vast majority of my, I'd say 90% of my games that I play, those are the focuses that I use. The only time I would change those is if a specific error pops up. So for example, if I'm hitting it left, left, left all day, and strategy is not giving me enough of an improvement, then I will maybe, you know, feel an open face throughout the swing, something like that. So, but it's rare that I have to go into that. Usually I can do things in setup to change direction, you know, just opening or closing the face at address is good enough for me. Yeah, I certainly, you know, thinking about different shots on the course, like with driver, I might be focused on like prior or when I'm over the ball, like maybe dropping my trail shoulder a little bit lower to get that tilt happening where, like you said, with irons, I'm more, especially with wedges, wedges, I'm almost exclusively focused on ground contact. That seems to help me the most, but certainly you can go back to our episode on locus of attention. I think that's a great way to, as Adam said, give consistency to the execution part 
of the pre-shot routine. I mean, your goal is to have a repetitive focus that you could stick with for the most part, aside from when we're trying to make some in-round adjustments if we feel like something's really going out of whack. But yeah, I think getting those, you know, striking that ground in front of the ball, like thoughts like that, certainly better than (laughs) how's my grip? Where's my shoulder turn going to be? Where's this going to be? Like that's a way to free your body up and execute in a way that is more athletic versus trying to guide the golf club and hit various checkpoints. So I certainly think, you know, the locus of attention episode can be really helpful there. Yeah, I think the main thing I want people to get here is to walk in and have one thought over the golf ball instead of 10. Yeah, you just can't do it. And I know sometimes it's unavoidable. You know, I think back to some rounds I've had recently where like maybe I hit a few poor shots or was struggling a little bit. It was when my mind just kind of wandered. And again, I can't prevent that. I'm not perfect. I don't have complete control over my mind. But certainly the worst results were when I was probably a little more mentally jumbled over the golf ball. More is not better in this game. It just isn't. Yeah. There are ways of, I think the big three are going to be the ones that are going to create your result. So ground contact, face contact, face direction. So if people are like, what do I think of? There's so many things that could go wrong in golf. Well, really, you can boil it down when you're playing at least to those three. And then out of those three, there's a good chance there's not going to be issues in all three. You know, there may be one that's really bad. So you just focus on the thing that affects that one. So if it's ground contact, you focus on something that improves that. But there are ways of influencing two or three variables with one focus. You know, I could say to someone, hit this spot in this direction, and I'm fixing ground contact, face contact, and face direction with that single focus. So... Yeah. Or like when I'm struggling with my hooks or something like that, I just, you know, I think of that fade swing where I'm just trying to swing a little bit more left. That kind of neutralizes the club path for me and fixes that solution. Or if I'm hitting it too far right one day, my I know my face is wide open. I have to think about getting it a little bit more closed at impact. So it's a complicated game, but I think if you've been listening to this show for a while, you're realizing that Adam and myself are trying to funnel you back into those simple thoughts because that is the only way I believe most golfers are going to reach their goals, which for the most part is lowering your handicap. I would say that's a pretty generic goal that most golfers who are probably tuning into this want to do is you have to get simpler. You can't get more complicated. I can't think of many people... We've mentioned Bryson a few times, but you know he's a professional. He's fine-tuning this seven days a week. For someone who's not out on the course that often, if you're playing you know, 10, 20, 30 times a year, I just don't think you have the ability to play well with, with complex thoughts on the course. Yeah, you might be able to train with complex thoughts. Yeah, exactly. You can train complex to get simple. I, that's a statement that I've probably repeated many different ways on Twitter and my articles over the years. You get complicated off the course and hopefully narrow it down to what works the best so that you can get simple on the course. And that is not easy to do. I've probably spent over 20 years doing it and I'm still trying to figure it out even as I continue to play. All right. So is that in-shot execution done? We've got keep moving, but don't spend too long over the ball. Don't be Sergio Garcia over the golf ball. Just more for the sake of, I don't think it improves performance as well, spending that long. I'm sure if I got Sergio Garcia to just walk in and whack it, I'm pretty sure his performance would be very similar. I could be wrong with that. I could eat my words, but I would uh, I would hazard a guess that that would be the case. And then try and focus on one thing over the golf ball. Pick something and focus on that one thing and then commit to it. And then should we go on to post shot now? Are you ready for that? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. I'll let you start, John. So I think this is something that is really not discussed at all in the golf world. I mean, if anything, in terms of, you know, mental advice, the pre-shot routine comes up a lot. And I'm sure a lot of the advice we've given has probably been echoed in other good resources that you've come across. So hopefully it's a reminder or if it's something new for you, that's great too. But something that I know has helped me tremendously over the years in shaping how my attitude (laughs) continues on the golf course is what happens after the shot. I think after you strike the golf ball, your reaction to it is almost just as important as the three things we talked about getting you to the the moment of impact. I think how you deal with, and again, this doesn't have to be, you know, we're on a golf course, you hit your shot and you go. So maybe we'll deconstruct this a bit, but like everything else we've discussed, you want to get to a place where it happens fairly quickly. So I think the post-shot analysis or routine 
If you don't have one, if you never thought about it, we'd like to give you some thoughts on what's helpful. Go ahead. What do you do in it? I think speaking generically, and there's been plenty of other coaches that have said a similar statement to this. I think a great framework is to internalize or take ownership of your good swings. So, you know, we are playing this game for fun. If you stripe a drive down the middle of the fairway, if you knock it, you know, hit a great iron shot on the green and you're happy with it, hopefully we've given you some good expectations on what a good iron shot is. You know, if it's 20 feet from the hole, you've done well for yourself. Or let's say you you drain a 15 footer for birdie or par. I like to internalize those. Those are small wins and you get kind of, you don't have to go crazy and do a tiger fist bump, but it's kind of one of those things where you're like, great, you know, you kind of have to be like, great shot to yourself. Like maybe you could do a little fist bump or something, a quiet one. I'm not trying to be a complete stoic on the golf course, but I try and be a little even keeled. But I think one part of it is that if you do hit a good shot, you know, take ownership of that, like be happy about it, be proud of it. That's a good thing. That's an important point. That's something that I've had to learn to do as a kid. You know, I'd hit a good shot. And you see this with good players all the time. They hit a good shot and they just pick their tee up and they go, that's expected. And then they hit bad shots and it's the complete opposite. Whereas the more I've learned about golf and the physics of it specifically, you know, to hit a fairway with a driver at 250 yards, you've basically got a four degree window of club face presentation. It's so narrow. So when you hit a fairway, you just performed a mini miracle there. And so, yeah, celebrate it, at least internally. I yeah, For me, like I do the, uh, because I've been driving it so well the last couple of years, maybe it's a little obnoxious, but I do a, like a, if I just stripe it down the middle, I do a quick like tee grab. I don't even look. And then like I go back to my spot waiting on the tee box and I'll watch where it lands. But it's kind of like one of those things I do like, oh, I just stripe that one, you know, don't even look for a few seconds because I know it's good. That's just something I do to kind of pump myself up for my good drives because that was a part of the game where I struggled tremendously for a long time. Certainly, if I make, you know, what I feel is like a pivotal putt in the round at a tournament or something, I'll do a little fist bump. Nothing wrong with that. I'm not screaming, (laughs) but um, I'm an emotional person for sure. So, we'll show some emotion on the golf course. But yeah, I think, you know, take ownership of your wins out there. Celebrate them. Well, even something like, you know, the Tiger Club Twirl or Tiger used to do a little foot tap as well after a good drive. You always knew he'd he'd do a good drive because of that. And so that's just a way of just kind of celebrating. And they kind of accumulate as well because the more times you do that, the more times your brain attaches that good feeling of just nailing one down the fairway. As long as it attaches that to the club twirl, when you do it, it actually brings back a lot of the feelings of the previous ones that you've attached to it as well, kind of like Pavlov's dogs. And so they call that tagging in psychology. And so we can start to tag certain events with other things and can compound itself and improve confidence over time. It can get to the point where I can just visualize that club twirl and feel good. All that rush of emotions of nailing it down the fairway come back. So sometimes that's something I include in my pre-shot visualization as well. Is I just imagine myself doing that club twirl and then that brings some confidence back to me. Yeah, I've spoken to a number of great golfers over the year who kind of had they probably figured this all out, you know, together. That's why they got so good at the game. But they've said, you know, sometimes when they're struggling, they just pull up memories of great shots. You know, if they're struggling with their irons, they think about, you know, that seven iron that just kind of nails it all over the pin or stripe in their driver. Like they, as you said, because you're internalizing those into your memory bank, you can kind of pull them up again. So yeah, you kind of want to take a mental snapshot of that victory. And keep it in there because it's a good thing. That's why we play this game. We want to enjoy ourselves. So I would say that's definitely an important part of the post-shot routine. Unfortunately, (laughs) those are not the majority of your shots. So I would say that for the rest of them, I think a good way to approach them is to in a, you know, let's say you strike a shot and it, it didn't go exactly where you wanted it to. I view it as now we're in a non-emotional objective state. We're not going to go to the blaming yourself or, you know, talking down on yourself. You almost want to remove yourself emotionally from the situation. And then it's like a non-emotional analysis of the shot. Was it a strategic mistake? You know, was it, you know, something that is just a normal variable in the game of golf? Was it maybe a mental mistake in your pre-shot routine? Um, Those are the types of, I think, examples of non-emotional analysis you could do in your post-shot routine. What do you think about that statement? 
Yeah, I do a lot of stoic analysis of the shot afterwards. You just want to not be, it's so hard because you want to like blame your side. I just want to be very clear with people. Like if you saw me hit a poor shot on the course, I might, you know, maybe be like, John, why'd you do that? But then I get over it. Sometimes you just can't help it. I was going to say, I'm a potty mouth on the golf course, but I don't mean it. I'll call myself the worst word under the planet, but I don't mean it. I'm kind of like joking inside. I'm, I mean, sometimes there's a little bit of, oh, that, that, that was bad, but it's almost like an instant thing. You feel that pain of the bad shot and you feel angry towards yourself, but like literally two or three seconds later, you're like, oh, I was only a couple of degrees closed, you know, I can fix it. It's not, not the end of the world. Yeah, I think you do have to, re- for people like myself, I am an emotional person. I do have to release a little bit of pressure from the balloon, if that's a, a good analogy. But yeah, I will. There could be some choice words in there. But as you said, I try and go back to that analysis phase as, cl- as close as I can. I mean, someone who comes to mind is, I know a lot of people get annoyed by him, but Jordan Spieth, as mentally strong as he is, I think he's one of the most mentally strong players I've ever seen in golf, he can get down on himself quite a bit. But I also think he's very good at letting it go before he gets to the next shot. So yeah, we can't be perfect at this. But I think you want to if you are going to let a little something out, you want to get to that like analysis phase fairly quickly. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. LinkedIn is not just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you cannot find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to a new perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. Also on LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Just recently, they even launched a new feature that helps you write your job description, making the process even easier and quicker. And they know that small business owners like myself and Adam are wearing so many hats and might not have the resources to hire. So it's a great place to get help. Now, here's what you can do. Post your job for free at linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot. That's linkedin.com forward slash sweet spot to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G shoes, which is their first big release of 2024 and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. I think the worst part is if you get down on yourself and you feel helpless to do anything. Like when I hit a bad shot, yeah, it hurts me a little mentally, not so much now, but I don't feel helpless because say I've hit it left. It's like, well, I know how to fix that. It's just playing the game now and adding some type of correction throughout the round. But I never feel helpless on the golf course like I used to when I was younger. And a lot of that is due to the differential practice we talk about all the time, you know, hitting intentionally right and left, toe and heel, because those give you the tools to be able to fix any problem on the golf course. So you don't feel helpless. (laughs) Yeah. You know, looking back and I hate to talk about, I really don't want to seem like I have golf figured out because I really don't. But if I think about a player who was not as good as I am now, that was the feeling I had is when a round started going poorly, I would get very down on myself because I'm like, there's no way out of this. I'm stuck. You know, this day is over. I'm just resigned to this bad day of performance on the course. And luckily I've 
hopefully matured enough where that no matter what, I'm going to try and have fun if I play poorly or not. So that's one commitment I try and make to myself. But another one is, I think Marty Jertson mentioned this on the interview with him. I thought it was a really cool way to talk about it. He Remember he said compounding like interest of skill. So I think as I've gotten better at a lot of the skills we talk about, I have more confidence, you know, as a close to 40-year-old person on the golf course is that I feel confident enough in my skill that I can turn it around or make adjustments. And that's a really important part of this post-shot analysis is like, I think of the other day I was playing and the first shot I hit was a, I had a nine iron from the middle of the fairway on the opening hole and I just hit a pull hook. And that is the shot that really does not sit well with me. I can live with any other result on the golf course, but when I hit a pull hook, I do not like that. But I reacted to it. I said, okay, my face was too close at impact. I'm going to kind of you know, maybe a little too into out there with the swing path. I noted it. I did do one of those, what did you just do there, John, type reactions. But I kind of noted it mentally being like, okay, let's file that away. If that comes up again, then maybe you're going to need to make an adjustment. It didn't. It didn't pull a lot of iron shots for the rest of the round. But I think that's a good example of a situation where if I was on the first hole six, seven, eight years ago and hit that shot, I'd be like, oh boy, here we go. You know, we're in for a tough one today. So I would say that to me was a constructive post round, uh, sorry, post shot. I keep saying round post shot analysis is that I let out a little steam, not too much. I looked at the ball flight and worked backwards and I made a note of it. I wasn't saying like, oh, I'm going to be hitting these shots all day, but I'm like, okay, that was the pattern on that shot. If it shows up again, two or three more times, then I might need to think about altering my swing path or the club face presentation at impact, maybe get it a little more open. So I think That's an example of a reaction to a shot that I'm happy with now because it was an analytical. I wasn't blaming myself. I was just accepting the result and moving on. Yeah, I I like having all these different algorithms in place for the common faults that are going to pop up. So, you know, I know already if a heel shot happens or if a heel pattern happens, then I'm going to do this. If a toe shot patterns, then I'm going to do that. If a left shot pattern happens, I'm going to do this. If a right shot pattern happens, I'm going to do that. If I'm fatting or thinning it. So basically the six faults that could occur, fat, thin, toe, heel, left, right. I've got something to fix them all. I've got it in place before I need it as well. That's the important thing. And I've done that through differential practice in my training. And so when anything pops up on the golf course that is not desirable, then you've got something to put in place so you don't feel helpless with it. Yeah. And it takes, you know, that level, I would say is very advanced and there's certainly a spectrum for that. There's more advanced than that. Trust me. I've got levels of things. I've actually got algorithms upon algorithms. So, for example, if the ball is going left, I have, well, this is fix A, this is fix B, this is fix C, and I know which one's produce different results as well. So there are real deep levels of this, but I'd I'd recommend everybody have at least one kind of algorithm for those six basic faults that could occur. Yeah. And I just think that speaking generically about reactions to shots, and again, you don't have to spend a full minute thinking about this, but I almost try and draw it. I'm also taking note of, you know, where is the ball finishing? I'm looking for trends, I guess is what I'm trying to say in an analytical, non-emotional way. Like, did I miss it short? Did I miss it long? How was my strike on the face? Everything you've discussed. Did I fat it? Did I thin it? So I'm just like, and this is happening instantly. Again, not, you know, this is taking me years to get to this point, but I think if you're trying to constructively manage your golf game, a good starting point would be to say, okay, after the shot, I'm not just going to like forget about what happened. I'm not going to get angry, but at least have a moment where you're taking account of what happened and storing it in this like memory bank. And then if you need to, you know, we talked about in-round adjustments on a lot of other episodes, when to maybe step in with a fix. It doesn't always have to be immediately because sometimes it's just the variability of your game. That's the way to do it is, I think, take ownership of your wins, your successes, and then be non-emotional and analytical with pretty much everything else. And then just do it all over again on the next shot. <laughs> I've got four things, uh, sorry, three things that I track diligently with all my pupils. If I'm in a round of golf, a playing lesson with someone, we track at the end of the shot, the shot result. And here's the key thing relative to aim. All right. I don't care where it finishes next to the relative to the flag. I mean, I care, but it's not something I note down. I note it relative to aim. So if that flag is on the left and you aim at the right side of the green, 
and you hit a perfectly straight shot and it hits the right side of the green, we would put that down as a perfectly on-target shot because that's where you aimed. Uh, if you pull it left and it lands five feet from the target or even as a hole-in-one on in the flag, then that goes down as a left miss. Yeah, you pulled it. Yeah, the stats would say that's an on-target shot. You've just had a zero proximity because you've had a hole-in-one, but under my stats, that would go down as a left miss because that analysis is much more beneficial when it comes to creating your own strategies. I want to know where I'm missing relative to my aim so that I can build the right or I can place my aim in the right place on the golf course. Great example of that is with a driver, I always aim at the right side of the fairway unless there's certain danger on the right. I say 99% of the time I'm going to aim at the right side of the fairway. If I hit the middle of the fairway, I put that down as a miss that was left relative to my aim. But that's not a problem. When I look at my patterns then, and I just use a little grid that I put a little dot on, really simple to do, really quick as well. And I can look at that and I can say clearly, oh my god, my pattern is all left relative to my aim. Therefore, I need to aim at the right side of the target. Yeah, working backwards from intent it's crucial because like you said, you're aiming at the right side of the fairway because you're very comfortable that the majority of your shots will end up to the left of it. That's why it's an optimal aiming point for you. For me, I don't step up when I hit my driver. I'm comfortable that I miss equally both left and right. So, I step up looking at, I pick my target based on what I think gives me the most success of keeping the ball in play and avoiding the trouble, not with a miss bias. So, that's something where you and I have unique or differences in our aim, but there's specific reasons for it. And it's all based on working backwards from intent. Yeah. You just need to know your pattern relative to your intent, relative to your aim, really. And then that gives you the better chance of overlaying it correctly. So like you said, keep it in play and avoid the danger. So what else are you tracking? You said you had three things you think about? I'll just add that with that, it is important. And I've experienced this recently as well, because I wasn't doing that the first time I went out on the golf course recently. And, you know, I came off the golf course feeling like, oh, my misses were a little bit random. And then I look back on it and I go through hole one, I miss left. Hole two, I miss left. Hole three, I miss left. So even at my level, you can have a pattern in the round and you don't see it. And it's so embarrassing to say, but if you are tracking it, you are going to see it. But if you're not, it's so easy to forget or not notice the patterns that are occurring. And so, yeah, just keeping track of shot relative to aim or even shot relative to target is fine as well. But keeping track of something, keeping track of the results so that you notice any patterns as they're occurring because it's easy to forget them. The other thing, the second thing I track is we've already talked about impact errors. Ground contact, face contact, face direction. And so I have a little tally and I only note it if it was a problem. And so that could be if it cost you shots or if it caused your shot to go outside of a certain acceptable range or if you just didn't like that element of that shot. So I would pick one of those and track your shots just to keep it consistent. So if I hit a shot, usually if I hit it on the green, it's within kind of 10 yards either side of the hole, front, back, left and right. I'm not going to note anything down because that's a tour level shot. So I'm just like, ah, it's okay. It's fine. I don't have to note it anything down at all. However, if it starts to go outside of that range, then I will note it down. If it's long and short, it's probably going to be a strike issue. And if it's left and right, it's probably going to be a club face issue. So at the end of a round, I can have a look and say, oh my God, my ground contact was the thing that cost me the most today. You know, there's lots under the tally of ground contact. Therefore, that then guides my practice and my training for the next week. So your training is then based around what your performance is on the course. So it's a real causative effect. If you improve that, then you're going to improve on the golf course rather than the alternative of what most people do, which is just try and pick some random swing thing that doesn't even relate to their results. Yeah, I often say all all the clues to your golf game are hiding in plain sight in your performance. But as you said, a lot of golfers aren't paying attention to the patterns or looking for them. They're just kind of, and again, I've done this plenty of times, they just kind of haphazardly go through their rounds. And then there's no always working back from intent. It's hard to diagnose what the problem is and work on it if you're not consciously absorbing that information and doing some type of analysis of it. So yeah, I mean, certainly I think if you do want to get better at this game, you have to get 
more analytical is, I guess, what we're trying to get at here. Yeah, most people aren't even trying to be aware of those things. I mean, if I play a playing lesson with people, I'm taking notes on the side and I usually show them at the end of the nine holes. But, you know, I'll come off the round and I'll say, so how would you describe your golf? And they say, oh, it was completely random. I was horrible. I I hit it left, right, everywhere. And And then I show them the results that I've tracked. And I say, well, no, actually, every time you misstruck the face, it was on the heel. And every time you misstruck the ground, it was fat. And every time you or the vast majority of your shots that you missed offline were all to the right. So there are patterns there and there are definite fixes. You need to go off and work on how to hit more towards the toe, how to improve your ground strike and how to hit it more left. You're going to be a better golfer at the end of that. So most people, when they're not tracking these things, either because they don't know them, maybe they don't know the big three, they haven't been listening to our podcast, you know, they're just not paying attention to them. Maybe they know them, but they're not paying attention to them. That happens more often than not. But yeah, so I'm tracking, three, as I said, three things. We've got shot result, relative to aim. We've got impact errors, the big three. And then the third thing that I track, I don't always give this to everybody, but mental errors. And we've gone through a few of these But there are certain mental errors that I look for. Club selection might be one of them. So if you've struck the ball perfectly, you've hit the center of the face, you've made a perfect divot in the right location, and you've hit it directly on line with your target, and it lands short in the bunker. It's probably club selection, so I would note that down. There might be a too aggressive or conservative strategy. So say, for example, someone hits it 10 yards left and it goes in the water, they might be screaming, see, I keep hitting it left. Whereas I would say to them, well, that wasn't a bad shot. That was a tall level miss hitting it at 10 yards left. You've just played too aggressively to a pin that you shouldn't have been playing towards. So that would go down as a tally. Too conservative strategy is really rare. That might be someone who's maybe listened to us and they're playing towards the back of the green all, all the time and, and they're striking it excellent that day. You know, they're striking every single shot really well and the pin's on the front and they're leaving themselves a lot of long putts. You know, at that point, you might say, maybe I should adjust my strategy here based on how well I'm hitting it on the day. It's very rare that I would need to say that to someone because how often do we see people hitting the back of the green? The other mental fault or another mental fault might be fear. So an example of that is you might hit it left. And yes, you can analyze that was a closed face. That was a shot that was left of my aim. But what were you thinking of? If you were fearful of hitting it right, you need to note that down. Because yes, you can put all the track numbers up and say that was two degrees closed. And and yes, you're correct from a physics point of view. But what influenced that? What created that? And so I get this all the time. In fact, I'd say most of my directional faults have some element of fear in there, some mental aspect to it. I was maybe frightened of missing left again, and I end up going too far right. So you just need to note these down. And that leads into another one, which is overcorrection. You know, the good thing with us is we know how to fix a fault when it occurs. The downside to that is we can actually implement too much of a fix. You know, you go left, 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 you start to influence the club face a little bit, as we know, and and then all of a sudden you hit one right. And so you need to note that down as well. Anything coming up for you at the moment, John? Yeah, I would say I probably split mental and strategy into two separate categories. And I think it's okay to lump them together like you are, because I think strategy is part of the mental game. But I often do the same thing, especially whether it's happening after the shot or certainly after the round when I'm looking back on all the decisions I made. I'm trying to pick out the shots that were, okay, those were just normal golf shots. That's just golf, part of the variability of the game. I'm trying to pick out the ones where I could do better next time. And usually those are either a mental mistake, like you said, a fear-driven mistake. I still make plenty of those. Like I think of one hole on my course. And this can happen, I think, if you play the same course over and over again. The 13th hole of my golf course, I for whatever reason, like you can't go right. And for whatever reason, I go right because I'm thinking about it. And you know, some there'll be plenty of rounds where I can make a good swing, but like that's a mental mistake to me. Can I separate that from a strategic mistake? Like you said, did I hit a good shot? I just maybe chose the wrong target or a wrong club. So it wasn't a technical problem. I hit the great shot. I just made a poor strategic decision. And they're kind of interrelated, but certainly I think it's very helpful to go through those shots and give yourself a lot of people refer to it as a mental scorecard at the end of the round saying like, oh, well, I had five mistakes that I think if I made a better decision on those, I could have lowered my score. And that's 
how you do lower your scores, I believe, because the next time you try and learn from it and make the smarter decision or be perhaps more committed to the shot. Yeah. Another one is with commitment. Second guessing. I separate this out from commitment. It's kind of a second thing, but they are tied in a little bit. So second guessing yourself, you know, maybe you're standing over the ball and you think, oh, if I take too much club, and then you end up fatting it or chunking it or just, you know, you hit, or you stand over a putt that you think, you know, is left to right, but you're not sure of how much you pick a line, you stand up over it and you think, oh, I'm aiming too far left, aren't I? So you make an adjustment and then you end up missing it on the right side and you think, if I just hadn't adjusted. So, I mean, that would come under second guessing or lack of commitment. For me, commitment is more, you know, for example, with the driver. I play very well when I'm aggressive with the driver, when I'm swinging, not fully lashing it, but, I, you know, definitely over 90%. When I start to get too tentative, you know, if I'm on a, a tight hole and I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm a little scared here. My body can stall out, hands flip over. And so I play better when I'm just standing up there and I'm just like, I'm going to lash this and deal with the consequence later. Play much better when I do that. So, you know, if, if I don't do that, I would put that under lack of commitment. Uh, there's lack of concentration as well. We all have those shots where we stand over a putt and we're thinking of something else and we end up blasting it 20 foot past. We think, oh, I wasn't even, wasn't even aware of what I was trying to do there. Lack of care. That's a different thing. So, you know, this is grit, I suppose, when people are playing a bad round and then they just start stepping up and trying to tap putts in that they shouldn't be tapping in or not going through their routine, not paying attention to X, Y, Z. So lack of care would be one as well. Distracted. You know, I have this sometimes when I'm putting and playing with amateurs is they might be walking around in the background. It's my own fault. I kind of walk up and I hit the putt and I think I'm not going to get distracted by it. And then as I'm standing over the putt, I'm thinking, oh, God, this player's rude. <laughs> and then I end up making a bad putt. Misjudging conditions. That could be one as well. You might hit a, a great shot, but you've just misjudged the strength of the wind. That's kind of hard to tease out. You know, if you hit a shot and it goes left and the wind was right to left, it's hard to know. Was that you who did that or was that the wind blew harder than you thought? But you can give a subjective answer to that. Or, you know, you with chip shots or coming out of the rough, you might hit it and land it exactly where you want. And then all of a sudden it runs out like a scalded cat. And you think, well, that wasn't necessarily a bad execution. I executed it exactly how I wanted to, but the conditions weren't how I thought they were. The ground was firmer than I thought it was. And then the last one I've got is luck. Sometimes we do everything right and you can hit a shot and the wind, the gust picks up and blows your ball offline. Sometimes you have a bad bounce. There is a luck element in this game. And so, I mean, what's that? Two, four, six, eight, ten, eleven different mental faults that could happen. Now, I know that's a lot. You're not going to have all of those in a shot. But all of this, this is how quick this could happen. I hit the shot. I then marked down that was left relative to my aim. I hit it fat and I was distracted on it. There, that's done. Three things. It takes you 10 seconds to do. I mean, it takes a lot longer to explain all of them, but it takes 10 seconds to actually do. Yeah, I think, I mean, if I had to make a generic characterization of all of those things is like you're trying to decipher between what is part of the variability of golf, which is just like, okay, that's just golf. Have to move on from that. Like you said, luck, a bad balance, the wind gusted a little extra. And then what's a pattern? You know, was I lazy with my thoughts? You know, was I distracted? Did I make a bad strategic decision? And that's hard to do. I think it takes a lot of experience. I also think it takes a lot of understanding. That's why we, we talk about managing expectations so much on the show is some people just don't have any idea of, you know, what's a reasonable outcome in this game, like hitting a wedge to 20 feet. Some person might interpret that as a mistake. They're like, oh, I, I did something wrong there. I got to fix that. Or I would say, well, no, you just hit a shot that's on par with PGA Tour players. So that's a Really important caveat I'd throw in there and we'll continually try and educate you on what are reasonable outcomes on the golf course because I think for the player that's too hard on themselves or doesn't understand it, that that could open up a can of worms where they're like, oh, I need to fix this. I need to fix that. And then maybe you don't. So yeah, that's why I don't give all of those mental errors to everybody. You know, a simplified version of that would be club selection, fear, 
yeah, those kind of things, fear or distraction, something like that. But club selection, misjudge of conditions as well. Because you need to know if you come off a round of golf and you're like, oh, well, I hit it awful with that. Well, it's like, well, why? Were there actual technical issues there? Or, you know, in the case of good players, especially, we might come off a round of golf and say, well, we actually struck the ball really well. At the moment, you know, I'm playing in Vegas. We're at, what, 4,000 elevation, 3,000 elevation. It's 110 degrees out here. My balls are flying so long. 90% of the mistakes I was making on the golf course were pure club selection issues. I can't get my distances at the moment. I'm flying every green leaf. So we need to know that, right? I could come off a round of golf thinking I need to work on my golf swing. Or I could come off my round thinking I need to work on my club selection and get my distances gapped properly again. Yeah. So I think doing your best in the post-shot routine and then post-round analysis is trying to look for simple patterns that are within your control. Maybe that's a, a good way to think about it. Really thinking about what, because this game is, especially with pre-shot and post-shot routines, we're focusing on all of the stuff we can control. And there's a lot in golf that we can't control. So really thinking hard about that and simplifying it and then making the adjustments on what you can control. You can take more club into the green. You can be less aggressive with your approach shots, not going for the pin every time. You can be more committed to taking driver out on a hole and picking your target and just going for it. Those are things you can control and then analyzing the results and saying like, okay, what happened? What can I do? Is there something I could do here? You know, it's funny. (laughs) Well, it's not funny because this happens every single time. Before the episode, was recording, Adam was saying, oh, well, you know, we're just doing execution and post-shot routine. Maybe we should throw in some reader questions to see if we can get a full episode out of this. And of course, I was like, nope, I think we're going to be okay. Yeah, here we are over an hour again. So we talked about a lot here. I think it was hopefully valuable for everyone listening because I think these two parts of the last part of the pre-shot routine and the first part of the post-shot routine are incredibly important. Is there anything else you wanted to add to the post-shot routine or are there any like major statements you want to make here? No, just noting patterns. I like what you said, noting patterns that are within your control. So, you know, if you, yeah, if you find something that's occurring, that's costing you shots, you know what to fix then. And you, and then you go to a coach to get those interventions. If you say, well, I keep second guessing myself or I keep picking the wrong one. If you're picking the wrong club, you know what to do, right? I'm misjudging conditions all the time. If someone says that to me, I'm going to say, you need to practice more randomly then. You need to get, you know, especially if it's chip shots and things like that, you need to get around the green and hit different shots from different places. So you're challenging that skill of judgment. So there's always interventions for all of these issues here. But yeah, I mean, let's wrap it up. I'll let you do a little summary of it, John, if you want. Yeah, I think especially what you said is taking notes of these patterns. I'm pretty sure we're going to do an episode on how to work with a coach or swing instructor more effectively. And if you do your homework and you have your patterns, instructors love to know, you know, they want as much information as possible. So if you know, say like, hey, I'm missing 80% of my targets to the right with a slice pattern. Well, now you've got verifiable evidence that that's a major problem that needs to be fixed. So, you know, whether you need intervention from a professional or they are things that are you know, within your control, like target selection, the patterns are important. So yeah, I will reiterate my opening statement is that a pre-shot routine and the post-shot routine, it's the one thing that you do have complete control over in this game. And as simple as it sounds, I would aspire to kind of hanging your hat on it and making a commitment to them and saying like, I am going to come up with this routine. It doesn't need to be three minutes long. It can be incredibly simple. I hope in these two episodes, we've given you some like cornerstones of of what could be helpful in those routines. And certainly it will take you some time to get used to them. But I would, you know, use these as kind of like one of the bedrocks of your game is saying like, I'm going to play. I will have fun in this game, but I will be sticking to these routines to the best I can, no matter what happens. And I think if you do, you will become a better golfer. My closing statement on this would be in implementing this stuff. Okay, we've talked two hours about it. However, the whole thing should take 10 seconds, 20 seconds tops, the whole routine, everything from the pre-shot analysis all the way to the post-shot. Lots of the post-shot you can do in your buggy ride, in your cart ride from one shot to the next. You know, that's when I'm doing it. Or even that, Shot relative to aim, bang, done. Impact errors, that was left. So face left. Mental errors, I was fearful. There, it's just taken 10 seconds to do. And most of this stuff, the more you do it, it takes even less and less time. But 
if you're going to implement this stuff, I know we've thrown a lot of information at you. Don't try and go out there and implement it all. Because that'll be it, like implementing every swing thought on YouTube. That's just going to be really bad for you. Just try and pick one thing that we've talked about that strikes a chord with you. And then implement that for a few weeks until it becomes more automatic and more ingrained. And then go and implement the next thing. And practice your routine as well. We didn't get to that point, but practice your routine. If you watch me on the range, even when I'm warming up, especially when I'm warming up, actually, I'm doing a full routine. It's each shot. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, 100%. I think if people work on these pre-shot routines and build them piece by piece over time simply and also doing them while you practice will give you a far better chance of them bearing fruit on the course. So try and be simple, go slowly with it and practice them. And I think that's it. Yep. All right, I'm going to do a plug for myself. If you guys are interested in learning more about strategies, routines, lies, I mean, everything, I've got my next level golf program. That's the one where you're going to get all that information. So, adamyungolf.com, NLG, next level golf. John? And you can always find me at practical-golf.com. I have plenty of articles on all of this. Sign up for the newsletter, check out our list of deals, and we will see you next time. And thanks again for all this support. And people keep getting in contact with us with ideas you have for episodes. We keep building our list, but we always want to hear from everyone to make sure we're covering the topics you're interested in. So we'll keep doing that and we will see you next time. All right. Till next week.